Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And yes, it's a new book, but we're starting halfway through the book, Ephesians chapter 4. In the next few weeks, we're going to be studying Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. And as you can see on the screen, the title of this series is Transformed by the Renewing of Your Mind. Really the question that I want to answer over the next few weeks is, how can I be changed to be more and more like Jesus Christ? And the answer from this passage from verse 17 down to verse 32 will be this, as a new person in Christ, you can walk like Christ by the renewing of your mind with the truth of Christ. And so we'll look at more of that next few weeks. But the passage will be divided up really into three parts. You'll see this week we're going to deal with verses 17 through 19, which, which really instruct us as to why we need transformation. And then in verses 20 through 24, teach us how God supernaturally transforms us. And then finally, in verses 25 through 32, we will see what that transformation looks like in real life. And I hope that you will be praying for yourself today and over the next few weeks that, that God would help you to understand what does it look like for you to be made into the image of Jesus Christ by the renewal of your mind. And then pray for me as I preach, and also let's just pray for one another Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. That's, that's our text this morning, and then I will pray. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? And as I read these three verses for our sermon this morning, and we will unite together as we look at the scriptures and I read aloud. Ephesians 4, verse 17. The word of the Lord says, Now this I say... And testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will open our minds, illumine our minds to the truth found in these verses. I pray for those in here, maybe one or more than that in here who don't know Jesus Christ. I pray today will be the day where the lights will come on and they will recognize that you are the glorious God and we must Submit to Christ as our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this week is Don't Live Like the World by Thinking Like the World. It was the year 56, maybe 57 AD, and there was a mob 
in Ephesus. And the leader of this mob was a man named Demetrius. And he had gathered a mass of humanity. They were shouting. They were protesting. They were angry at the Christians in Ephesus. And they wanted to stop these Christians from evangelizing. And really what was happening was people were becoming Christians and no longer were they worshiping their goddess, the great Artemis. 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 Sorry, I said that wrong. Artemis, the great Artemis. And so they screamed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In fact, they even grabbed some Christians and dragged them into that group. And the Bible says that they shouted for two hours in praise to their goddess. Really, one of the big problems they had was Demetrius and some of those other ones. They made a lot of money off of this goddess because they made little statues out of silver and they would sell them to people. People would put them in their home and then they would bow down and worship those statues. Now, just think about that. Here you have people who take a piece of metal, they shape it to look like a weird-looking goddess, they put it in their home, they pray to that piece of metal, and they think that metal's going to do something for them. And here you have Demetrius and other individuals who they are the ones who shape that goddess themselves, that piece of metal. And that goddess is so powerful that she can't even defend herself. Like they have to go out in the city and they have to try to stop these Christians. But you think about people who worship idols or, or people who, who lead mobs like Demetrius. The question I think we ask many times, and I ask definitely myself, is why do people do things like that? What compels a person to get on their knees before a piece of metal and talk to it? And hope it does something for you. Or maybe to put it in our modern context, why do people do the things they're doing in our society? Right? We watch the news or you listen to what's going on in our society and, and you wonder, you ever wondered like, is our, are people crazy? Why do people go around Simi Valley and they steal catalytic converters? Well, they're greedy. We know that one. Why do people lie? Why is there road rage? Did you experience that at all this week? But as we look around our world, we think about why are these things happening? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, give the answer. And the answer is this, that people live the way they do because they think the way they think. And the reason they think the way they think is because they're oriented by their sinful nature and so you could look at it like this, that your inner nature orients, it influences, it directs your thoughts, and your thoughts produce your actions. We have a little cat at home, and our cat likes to scratch things. Do you have a cat that likes to do that? And it messes things up. It likes to jump on top of the shelf and run along the shelf and knock things down why do cats do what cats do? Because cats think like cats think. And why do cats think like cats think? Because they're feline, right? They're cats. And so even though we're like, stop doing cat things, I don't think she's going to stop doing cat things. 
I say she because I think all cats are she's, but that's another sermon. <laughs> but your, your nature orients your thinking, which produces your action. The reason why the world does not live for Christ to glorify God, that's their actions, is because something is fundamentally wrong on the inside. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 teach that those who are unregenerate, those in the world, their inner nature is spiritually dead. And therefore, they can't perceive the truth of God, which therefore results in godless living. And then next week, what we're going to see is those of us in Christ, because we're in Christ, we've been made new creations. We are made in the image of Christ. And therefore, we are to think like Christ so we can live like Christ. But our focus this week really is on the world, why the world lives the way it lives. And for us, the application really is this, that those of us who are in Christ, that we have been made a new creation in him through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit at our salvation, those in Christ must not live like the world by thinking like the world, oriented to the world's sinful disposition. So we're going to look at three three ways that God does not want us to be like the world, that we are to be different from the world. First of all, if you are in Christ, you must not live like the world. Notice verse number 17. Scripture says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is Paul writing this. And Paul emphatically declares here that what he's writing is from the Lord. I say, I testify in the Lord. This this is reminding the church that scripture is not just what Paul wrote down. Yes, he's the human author, but it originates in Christ, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So in the Lord means the source of the teaching of Scripture is Jesus Christ. And the irony here, as he starts off to teach on this, is that the unbelieving people, the unbelieving world, they reject the truth that's in Christ. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and notice that for believers, we heard the truth of Christ, that is the gospel, and we believed that. So, So the light came into our hearts through the truth of Christ. Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He recalled how the Ephesian believers heard the word of, what's the next word? Word of? Heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus. That word truth is such an important word because that's the difference between lies, deceit, and the opposite, which is reality. That's truth. So there's a reality about Jesus that awakens our souls and causes us to come to life when we believe it. And that's called the gospel here, the word of truth. So go back to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Because what he's going to say in this passage is that word of truth is what awakens the soul to righteousness. You can see that in verse 20 where he says you learned Christ. What does it mean to learn Christ? Verse 21 at the very end is that you know the truth of Christ. So back to verse 17. He's saying here that this is the word of truth from the Lord to them about the Gentiles. Notice verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is concerned about the church living like the world. That were Gentiles designated those nations who are not a part of God's chosen people. This is really an Old Testament word that, that demonstrated that there was a group of people that were not a part of God's chosen people. And these people were those who are outside of God's covenant family. And so in this context, it's those who are outside of, of those who are in the covenant family of Christ, those outside of Christ. So the instruction in verse 17 is that believers, those who are in Christ, are to no longer walk like the world, which means what? Which means there was a time that we did walk like the world. We were going the direction of the crowd and it also means that it's tempting for us to go that direction again. But he's saying, no, you're to walk with the Lord. But you know what? Usually what that means, it means we're walking the opposite direction. I mean, imagine a street full of 10,000 protesters marching down, you know, the road. They're carrying their signs. They're doing their chants. And you're trying to walk the opposite direction. I think that's a pretty good picture of what it's like for us to live in this world. Right? It would be difficult to, to try to navigate that crowd. It would be easier to go the opposite way. But God says, no, no, follow me. Follow me to life. It's difficult, isn't it, when we are in a group of people, whether it be at, at work or whether it be with friends or whatever it is, and you're the odd one in the group. You know, they're talking about that, that issue or that movie or that topic or that joke and you know it blasphemes the name of Jesus Christ and everyone else is like in on it and you're sitting there and you're the weird one, right? But that's how it's going to be. If we're going the direction of Christ, it's going to go the opposite of the way the world is going. And he says, listen, you are to be distinct. And so the scripture here is telling us that we're not to walk, we're not to live, our conduct must not be like the world. Do you realize that God's grace, Christian, saved you, not just so you can go to heaven. God's grace saved you so that you would walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3 are all about, that God's grace changes you. In fact, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to demonstrate this to you in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3 speak about God's grace, the glory of God by giving grace to us. He pours out the blessings of grace. Ephesians chapter 1, God gives grace to his church, and that is the riches of salvation. So if you look in verse number 3 and 4, you can see his grace provides election to salvation, adoption to salvation, adoption into his family, that's verse 5. Verse 6, it's a result of what? To the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse number seven, grace provides redemption by the blood of Christ. 
grace provides glorification in verses 11 through 14 so that we can have the inheritance. The point is that God has richly bestowed upon us his grace. That's his favor that we don't deserve. Notice in verse number four, the goal of grace. What is the goal of grace? Verse four, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The reason God saved you is to sanctify you for his glory. God saved you to make you like Jesus Christ. God's greatest desire for you, his wonderful work in your life every day is to conform you, to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. When you're going through those difficult times and those trials and think about some of the prayer requests we gave this morning, we think about praying for individuals who are going through hard times. The number one request should not be, God, get this out of my life. It might be number two. But the number one request really can be found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. And that is where God says it's his wonderful purpose, his good will in our life verse 29, is to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so our prayer is, God, use this to to shape my mind and my desires, my inner person, to align to your will, to be like Jesus. And then Ephesians chapter 2 recounts how God's grace made us a new creation. We were dead in trespasses and sins. That's our nature. nature. But notice verse number 2. According to our nature, we walked. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. We once walked in those sins. So because we were dead, therefore we walked like dead people. We were spiritually walking in sin and transgressions. We, verse three, we followed the, or verse two, we followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of this air, of the air. Verse three, we followed our passions. That's our desires within our body and our mind. We were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So here he's saying, you lied, you held grudges, you lusted. That's the way you walked. That was your conduct. That was your lifestyle. And therefore you were, past tense, you were under the condemnation of God. You were a child of wrath. You deserved eternal hell because of your sin. But something changed in your life. What was it that changed? It's called grace. It's called God's work in your life. And so in verse 5, you can see, he says, when you were dead, that was your nature. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You couldn't resurrect yourself. So what happened? God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we're saved. And when grace enters your life, yes, he makes you a child of God. Yes, you're destined for heaven. But it also does verse 10. Because notice what verse 10 says. It says that we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. It's like God recreates our inner person. We are made like Christ positionally. We're made like Christ. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? That we should walk in then. So we once walked like the world, and now we're to walk in good works like Jesus Christ. And you can really divide this book into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 speaks about how God has made you, by his grace, a new person. And then chapters 4 through 6, that you must walk like 
that new person. You must walk like Christ. So chapters 1 through 3 speak about how God has made you to be like Christ. And then chapters 1, 4 through 6, how we must walk like Christ. In fact, look at in chapter 4, verse 1. Let me demonstrate this to you in chapters 4 through 6. Look in Ephesians 4, 1. says that I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. So here's your walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. And so you look down in chapter 5, verse 2. Notice chapter 5, verse 2 says, we are to walk in what? We're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, we're to walk in the light. Chapter 5, verse 15, we're to walk in wisdom. And then he talks about walking like Christ in our homes, walking like Christ in our place of employment, chapter 6. And the point is, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he instructs us how we are to walk like Jesus Christ. So go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, because this is the context where he says, you must no longer walk like the Gentiles walk. And why do they walk the way they walk? Why do they live the way they live? Look in verse number 17, he says, because they think the way they think. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So second, if you are in Christ, you must not Think like the world. Verse 17, he speaks of why the world does what it does. And it's because the world, those who are without Christ, they think a certain way. They think with infutility. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says this. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You see, your actions come from your thoughts. They're a product of how you think. You do what you do because you think what you think. Christ said, what comes out of the mouth, what you speak, proceeds from the heart. And many times we like to give excuses. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Or I didn't mean to say it. No, actually, if it came out of your mouth, it came from your heart. That's why Satan's main point of attack upon us is our minds. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, Satan's attack was to subtly deceive their minds to think about God in a way that was false. Did God actually say this? Is this actually what God meant? well, you're not really going to die. Don't trust God. And it's that subtle deception in the mind. He attacked the mind. And that's why Paul says, I'm really concerned about the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11:3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his deceitfulness, his craftiness, your mind, that's the same root word that you find back in Ephesians 4, 17. Your mind will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Satan, he's after your mind. The battlefield for spiritual warfare takes place on the field of your mind. That's why the father in Proverbs tells his son, keep your heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for out of it 
flows the springs of life. Everything comes out of your heart. He's saying, guard your heart. I mean, think about a castle. Think about a guard at the front of that castle and the door of that castle. And he's allowed to let people in, allowed to let people leave. But think about that guard and whoever, whomever he lets into that castle, those people inside the castle will influence that castle. They'll influence what's going on in there. In fact, if he has enough people that are the wrong kind of people, it could actually overthrow that castle. And every thought that you allow into your mind and you allow to ruminate in your mind eventually will affect who controls you or what controls you. I read a study this past week. I think it's called the Cigna study. And it studied different generations. And it found that this youngest generation, that is those who are, they studied those who are 21 and younger, I think 21 to 12 or something like that. They studied them and noticed that they are considered to be the loneliest generation. 73% of those who were surveyed said they were very lonely. And it was interesting because then they studied the boomer generation. That's the older generation. Wouldn't you think that that generation would be the loneliest? But they weren't. Far and above this younger generation was. And one of the, one of the things they connected was the fact that this younger generation was predominantly on social media. And they connected the fact that these individuals were looking for relationships and connections and fulfillment in the social media, but the more they consumed of this media, the more lonely they actually were. See, here's the thing. The world tells us, like, if you want connections, if you want relationship, just go scroll, you know, post this, click on this, and I'm not preaching against social media. What I'm saying is, is that the world's media, what they want you to put in your mind, it can't fulfill you. It can't give you what it promises, And so we got to be very careful about what we put in our minds. What we think about will produce what we do. That's what the scripture teaches. That's what he's saying here. The Gentiles walk. They walk the way they walk because they're walking in the futility of their minds. Look at verse 17. That word futility means pointless. It means it won't accomplish its purpose. What is the purpose of? Of the mind. Why did God give you a mind? Well, God created Adam and Eve with minds, and their minds were given to them so they could know the truth of God. That's the knowledge of God. So they could they could observe what God had, where God had placed them. They could see God's handiwork, his amazing attributes. They could talk to God and hear. From God, they can contemplate the glory of God, the wonder of God. And their minds, therefore, as it considered who God was, what God does, how wonderful God is, as their minds contemplated the glory of God, their minds would move their will to live in obedience to God and stir their affections to enjoy God. The mind was given to us so that it can be informed and could really inform the will to obey God and stir the emotions to respond to God. See, the scripture says, think about these things, Philippians 4, 8. What things? Things that are true and honorable, and it gives the list of those things. And as we think about those things, what's the result? God gives us peace, the peace 
of God will be with you. See, the mind was given to the mind was given to be the place where information is processed. The mind is the information hub of the inner self. The mind receives information. It organizes information. It reasons about that information. It inter- it's intricately connected to other parts of the inner person. And it informs. The mind informs the will. The mind informs the conscience. The mind informs the emotions. And so the Bible teaches that we have minds and that's the central hub of our inner person. You see, the, the inner person, or I should say a person, is made up of really two parts. You have your physical being, you have your body, and then you have your invisible being, your inner self. Go, look over actually in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. And you can see where the scripture speaks of this inner person. Ephesians 3, 16. We're just going to jump right in the middle where it says, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So the Holy Spirit strengthens us, notice, in your inner being. That's that inner self. And and then notice verse 17 parallels the inner self with the heart. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So that's really the parallel to the inner being. We don't have really time to to go through this in depth. But the scripture speaks of the heart as of that inner person. We think of the heart as really we compartmentalize that as that place of our emotions or our feelings. And so a boy sees a girl and he says, I love you with all my heart. And usually that means I got these butterflies and I just feel something for you. And if he's in seventh grade, it might change by the next week. Most modern movies instruct with follow your heart. And they're not saying contemplate the knowledge of God and, and, and think about that in your heart and then come to a decision that you're going to follow Jesus. No, they're saying follow your feelings, follow what you desire. So when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about it in the way the world talks about it. The scripture speaks of the heart as the entire inner person. The word heart incorporates all the aspects of that inner man. The heart includes emotions and the will and the conscience. But the primary thing your heart does is think. Your heart thinks. And so sometimes heart and mind are used even interchangeably because that's primarily what your heart does. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks, where? In his heart. Psalm 77, 6, let me meditate, let me think, ruminate in my heart. Proverbs 14, 33, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders, it thinks about how to answer. And then Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes. So so the center of who you are, I should say the center of the heart, the inner person, is your mind. Your mind receives knowledge so that you can know God, discern the value of God, and rightly respond to God. I was thinking about an illustration for this, and I was thinking about the Apollo 11 uh, 
mission to land on the moon. And in order for the Apollo 11 mission to be able to be accomplished, there had to be a a mission control center. So, So think about the mind as that NASA mission control center that communicated to Apollo 11 and helped them land on the moon. The mission control center was the place where all the information was processed. I got a picture of it right there. There you go. All the information was processed through this center. The mission control center had people there making calculations, collecting data, organizing information. And then they would take that information and they would send that to the Apollo 11 spacecraft so they could make correct decisions. And so the the mind is kind of like that that hub, that mission control center in the heart. But but imagine if there was some kind of short that took place, electrical short in the building, and some of those computers went out. Maybe some of the lights were flickering on and off. Maybe there was a flu that went through, and so half the people in there were sick. How would that affect the mission of landing on the moon? It would have dramatically affected it. In other words, they would have been dysfunctional. And that's really what Ephesians 4.17 is speaking about with the mind. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't doesn't fulfill the purpose with which God made it to fulfill. And that is to glorify God. That is to enjoy him. So the world's mind, it's futile. It's, It's pointless. It really is not fulfilling the purpose for which God gave them a mind. And it's not saying that the world is intellectually deficient, right? There are many men and women that are way more intelligent than any of us in this room, right? And they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying that they're missing a key component. They're missing a key component. What's the key component they're missing? That is the knowledge of God. That is the ability to perceive the truth about God. I mean, think about it this way. How can a doctor Enter into a clinic and abort a baby. That is hard to understand, isn't it? How can a person who is so high in intelligence that they go through many years of higher education to get a degree so they can go and take apart a little baby in the womb, put it in a bag, and then ship it off to be sold? read an article this past week that in 2012, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration purchased the head of aborted babies for $515 a piece. That's our United States government. And you ask, how do sane people do stuff like that, right? That's what I, when I read it, I was like, how do people do stuff like that? Well, it's because the mind of unbelievers is void to the truth about God. It's like in their minds, either they don't believe God exists or they have a distorted view of God. They are their own God, but their minds cannot perceive the world according to the truth found in the scriptures. And so the warning here for us as a church is that we must not live like the world by thinking like the world. And then last, we must not live like the world by being orientated to the world's disposition. Let me just ask this question. How concerned are you about your thoughts? How important is 
Is it what you allow to go in your mind? Does the Holy Spirit truly control your mind? And then second, as we, our third, as we go to this next part, are you oriented in your inner person to the world's disposition? In other words, do you automatically reject the Lord and his word? Look at verse number 18. The scripture says there are two reasons why a person has futile thoughts. Verse 18, first of all, they are darkened in their understanding. And second, they are alienated from the life of God. So the reason the world cannot perceive the truth of God is because their hearts are dark. I didn't ask my son to do this, but Isaac, could you run back and just turn the lights off real quick? I want you to think about what it's going to be like here with the lights on and the lights off. The scripture describes those without Christ as those with the lights off. And so let's turn those lights off. Think about that. We have lights up here. But when you turn the lights off, it's hard to perceive things, right? I mean, you might see something is happening, but spiritually when the lights are off, you can't perceive how God, who God truly is and how God truly is working. You can turn those back on, buddy. And the question is, who keeps the lights off? Well, the scripture says that Satan's number one job in this world to those who are unbelievers is he's trying to keep the lights off. The God of this world, Satan, is blinding the minds of believers. There's that word mind. There's that part of you that receives information, discerns the glory and the wonder of God so you can trust in God. He is blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of God who is in the image of Jesus Christ. You see, when we think about our family and our friends that don't know Jesus Christ, we need to think about a verse like this. And that is those people, they just don't understand. Satan is actively working to try to get them to keep the lights off so they don't have the gospel come on in their mind and understand the truth. And so we're fighting. We're fighting people who have, we're fighting Satan who is trying to get people to, to be blind to the, the gospel or he is, he is blinding them to the gospel. How do you fight that? How do, you, how do you fight that when someone's blind like that and Satan's work is to continue to keep them in the dark? Well, this is where the wonder of 2 Corinthians 4 comes in because he says we don't proclaim ourselves. See, the answer to, to giving the gospel to a lost person isn't to have, be the most amazingly smart person and have all the right arguments, right? I mean, you're really going to convince them if you could just have these three points you know, and you can just tell them, like, hit them right between the eyes, right? That's what you're going to do. No, we don't preach ourselves. It's not about us. We're, what, what are we preaching? We're proclaiming what? Christ Jesus as Lord. And so God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Is the same God who can open up the eyes of someone else that doesn't know Christ, and he can say, let there be light, and they can see the light. And, and what is it? What is that light? It's the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And church, where do we find that knowledge? It's found in God's word. So what's the answer when you're trying to give the gospel to your friends and to your loved ones who don't know Christ? It's give them the light and ask God to work. And so the scripture says that we are not to think like the world or be oriented to the world's disposition. So the second reason why their minds are futile is because verse 18 says they are alienated from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God means they are separated from the life-giving power of God. Their souls are spiritually dead. There's no ability that they have in them to please God. No spiritual life resides in them. And I think right here we can identify this ultimately is the problem our society has. When we think about the problems that we have in marriage or in our kids' lives or in other situations, the answer is not just like give a, give a little religion here and maybe a little bit of knowledge here. It's not, it's not this kind of pragmatic, like let's, what do we have to put in place to fix the problem? No, the problem is, what he's saying right here is that they're alienated from the life of God. In other words, the problem is their relationship with God. See, we recognize when we have a problem and some type of relationship with each other and we're not getting along for whatever reason, the problem isn't just the other person, Right? I mean, they could be causing your problems. The problem ultimately, though, that we have, at least when we're at fault, is a relationship. Is our relationship with God. We're not living in fellowship with God. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he hid his sin. He lived a lie. But then God had Nathan find David out. And David broke, right? David broke. In Psalm 51, says that he prayed and David recognized that his sin, yes, was against other people, but ultimately he said in Psalm 51:4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And what David is saying here, he's saying, I understand that I've sinned against people, I've hurt people, but he's saying, like, my problem really was this whole time that I was not living in fellowship with God. I sinned against him. And here's the thing, we have to identify that that really is the source of what's going on in many people's lives. Like, and that's sometimes the source of what's going on in our life. When we have sin in our life, it's because we're not living in fellowship with God. And so we must not be orientated to the world's disposition that is blind to the truth, that's out of fellowship with God. And then notice in verse 18, he further explains why these futile minds are in darkness and alienated from God. So why are they in darkness? Why are they alienated from God? Well, it's their own fault. Notice he says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ignorance means they are void of the truth of God. This is, this is not ignorance that is, in, that is excusable. It's not like, oh, they're ignorant, so they're, they're excused. It's, this is willful ignorance. Because notice it says, due to their hardness of heart. It's like, it's like Romans chapter 1. It says that they, they knew God but they didn't honor him as God. It's like they looked around, they said, yeah, there's, 
I can see that there's attributes that could reveal that there's a God. Or maybe someone tells them about it and they're like, yeah, I know there's a God. But I refuse to acknowledge God. And the scripture says they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they said, no God for me. And that's what the scripture is saying right here. They hardened their hearts in willful ignorance. In fact, what you can see is this downward spiral and if you look at the scripture, it's going up, but we're going to look at it going downward, downward. And that is this willfully harden your heart. Then therefore you're alienated from the life of God, darkened in your understanding, which leads to futile thinking. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 is teaching that the reason the world rejects God, here's the thing, it's because it's their own fault. No person will enter into hell and scream out, I didn't know it wasn't my fault. That's what the scripture is teaching right here. It's because they hardened their heart against the Lord. This is a warning here for any person. This is a warning for anyone in this room. If you are without Jesus Christ, this verse is teaching you right here that when God gives you knowledge about himself and you resist that knowledge, you harden your heart. You don't know if there could be a time when God will give you that knowledge again. Not just that, you're, that you might not live to see another day, but you know what? You might think, well, I, I'll just I'll respond to the Lord later on. You don't know that. Because notice what he says in verse 19. He says that your heart is calloused. I mean, think about a callous. When you uh, play an instrument or you work outside and you, re- you do something over and over again and you you know, repeat that enough on your hands, you form a callus, right? And then you become insensitive to that. That's, that's the idea here, is you keep saying, no God, no God, no God, and your heart begins to be calloused. And you think, well, I'll be able to feel God someday and respond to him. You don't know that. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer to God's work in your life is to say, you need to respond right now. And and, and Christians, how much so more for us when the Holy Spirit is working in life? It's like I'm preaching a sermon or someone else is teaching a lesson and you hear something, you think, oh, I need, I probably need to do something, but I don't really want to do that right now. And you say no to the Lord. Oh, you are in such a dangerous situation. You can callous your heart in that way. And notice in verse 19, this is how the world is. They, They have become callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality. See, the danger is the more you resist God and his word, the more callous you become, which will sweep you down a river of lust that will drag you over the falls to destruction. That's what verse 19 is saying. Notice how you reject God and you do that by giving yourself over to sinful desires. Notice that word in verse 19, sensuality. It means to be given to the senses, to be ruled by unbridled desires. It's basically handing your soul over to the slave master called sexual or sinful desire. And it includes desires like, notice verse 19, it includes desires like the practice of every kind of impurity. So you give yourself over to impurity. That may include pornography, 
getting inebriated with alcohol, spending money to, fill, to be fulfilled. That may include drugs. But, but the point is that you become enslaved. And then it's, notice that word greedy, greediness. It means that you want it more and more. Your, your sinful desires are not satisfied. You're like, I, I'll just do it one more time. Guess what? No, you won't. You give yourself over to those desires and you want more. And it's like you have a thirst that can't be quenched. And that's what he's saying in verse number 19. You're like the kayaker who gets in the raging river. And once you get in the water, you can't stop even if you want to. You're like that 18-wheeled truck. And he's, he's flying down the road at the incline. His brakes go out. And you think, well, I can stop. And you try it. You can't. That's what happens when you give yourself over to those desires. And that is what the world is like. That's the spiraling effect of a person who rejects the Lord. And therefore, they're alienated from God. They're dark in their understanding. And their minds cannot fulfill the purpose for which God had made them. And so, church, for us, how thus shall we live? If you are in Christ, you must be committed. You must ask God to help you, to give you the strength and grace to not live like the world, but to live like Christ. We, we must not think like the world. Oh, be careful, little mind what you think. I don't think that's part of the song, but let's go ahead and add it. Right? We must be careful about what we allow into our minds, what we meditate on. And then we must not be orientated to the world's dispositions. May our hearts never resist God when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. May our hearts be living in full submission to the Lord. But when God touches us with the truth, we say, yes, I want to obey the Lord. May we pray and humble ourselves under the almighty hand of God. May we live like Jesus Christ. Let's pray.